A note before you listen. In this episode, Piranha Reddy speaks about her work at the Queen's Museum, and in particular about initiatives created in collaboration with immigrant communities in Queens. After the podcast was recorded, Laura Reykjavich, the director of the museum, unexpectedly departed her position there in what was widely reported as political differences with the museum's board. As the New York Times notes, during her three years as director, Ms. Reykjavich was an outspoken advocate for immigrant rights and positioned the museum as a leader on social issues. Hi, and welcome to Artwork, Fab NYC's podcast, which looks at the ways that art works in the world. I'm Ryan Gillum. I'm the executive director of Fab NYC and Downtown Art, and I'm joined by Gonzalo Casals. Hi, Ryan. And Ferrana Reddy. Great to be here. I'm so glad you guys are both here. I'm going to start us off by sharing a bit of background on both Gonzalo and Piranha. So Gonzalo Casals is the director of the Leslie Lohman Museum. His experience ranges from innovative programming, authentic engagement strategies, and progressive cultural policy. As vice president of programs at Friends of the Highline, he led the organization in a transformative process to focus on equitable cultural practices. Gonzalo held various roles at El Museo del Barrio. His tenure was informed by ideas of cultural production as a vehicle to foster empowerment, social capital, and civic participation. Gonzalo continues to explore these concepts as a member of the Naturally Occurring Cultural Districts New York, or NOCDNY. Piranha Reddy is the Director of Public Programs and Community Engagement for the Queens Museum. She's also in charge of the museum's community engagement initiatives that utilize a cultural organizing model to build inclusive civic engagement opportunities in nearby neighborhoods, predominantly comprised of new immigrants. These include the museum's off-site Immigrant Arts and Activism Center, Immigrant Movement International, Corona, and the collaborative design and ongoing programming of Corona Plaza. She was recently appointed by the mayor to the New York City Cultural Affairs Advisory Commission, which advises the Department of Cultural Affairs on increasing cultural equity and developing the city's first comprehensive cultural plan. Hey. So that's kind of the formal bit. But I was wondering if you all might want to share something about your own personal identity and how that informs the work that you do. Well, um, my own personal cultural identity. Well, I think there's lots of different ways that you can you know, slice that tomato. I think I came up kind of as a cultural activist, I would say, um, from the South Asian community, working with other South Asian um, immigrant communities around political education, working with youth, um, starting a um, collective, a media collective, to kind of provide a platform for distribution for video work um, made by folks in the diaspora. Um, I think that, to me, all of those things connected because it was really about creating a space for a a kind of cultural experience here in the United States that wasn't being um, necessarily given room in mainstream media or in mainstream art spaces. And um, because the communities spread out throughout the United States, wasn't that, the, that there was a huge concentration in one, any one place that people had to pay attention to us. So it felt like it was important for us as South Asians and 
um, to create our own platforms and mm. to create our own spaces uh, for meeting each other and for sharing our work and for creating a public platform. In my case, it's interesting. Um, a while ago, somebody defined, somebody said that my career is defined by the act of immigration, right? Um, the idea of moving from, you know, not only geographical places, I'm originally from Argentina, but moving from, you know, um, changing careers through identities. I'm an immigrant, I'm Argentinian, I'm Latino, I'm queer. Um, when I'm in a room full of cultural producers, I'm sort of the, the community organizing person. When I'm in a social justice environment, I'm the cultural person. <laughs> I'm constantly in these gray areas, and I think I mm-hmm. do it on purpose, just to investigate a little bit the intersectionality of these multiple worlds in which I exist. Mm. Um, that's great. I, um, I know both of you so much through the ways that you personally approach um, the work and how much of yourselves you bring to everything that you do. That's one of the things I admire about um, how both of you uh, do your work in the world. And both of you are working in museums. Um, and museums an interesting word and concept, <laughs> which I feel as though you uh, wrestle with quite a bit and have a lot of experience thinking about. So I was wondering if you might just say a little bit about uh, working in a museum and, and what that means and how that is different or not different from being in a different kind of cultural organization. Well, I mean, I came to working in a museum somewhat by chance. Um, I hadn't been looking for a career in, in programming or museum administration per se. I was, I first started out as um, working at a film festival and very interested in documentary production. I never took an art history class or an arts administration class. I just kind of learned my way into working for a nonprofit and got some experience doing that. But at, but kind of parallel to that, I was always, as I mentioned, connected to artist collectives. So I, I was part of the South Asian Women's Creative Collective, and um, Jayshree Abhichandani, who founded that group, um, was hired by um, Tom Finkelpearl, who was then a kind of new director at the Queens Museum. And it was really to create a new department to address um, a lack that he saw, which was the connection between the museum and the communities uh, around the museum. And if anyone could make that possible or could give insight onto what it would take, why shouldn't it be the the very type of person that should be low-hanging fruit, an immigrant artist who lived within walking distance from the Queens Museum, herself and grew up there, um, but never saw the museum as a platform or as a resource or a place that she wanted to take her family um, or a place that would take her work seriously. And so um, she was the first hire and immediately wanted to kind of expand the work to doing um, political education and youth work that was long-term. And I had, like I mentioned, been working, um, doing some like a week-long political action training for South Asian activists from all over North America. And so, and we had been working together at Saucy, doing some of the, um, both programming as well as kind of turning it into a nonprofit. And so she thought she could work with me and that we had a lot of um, political alignments mm-hmm. and commitments to really doing institutional change. So I kind of came into the museum specifically to create 
that change. And I think that's very special. And I think the way that it was done, where it was a new department rather than just a program, gave it a certain gravity and independence that doesn't necessarily happen in a lot of other museums. And that has allowed us to kind of really organically develop what makes sense based on what we were hearing from the communities we were trying to reach. You know, recently I remember um, sometime in the mid-90s, I was with um, a couple of friends from architecture school. I was in architecture school. And I remember saying, you know, when I grow up, I, I'm, I'm going to be a museum director. Little I knew that <laughs> I would move to New York and <laughs> become a museum director and be careful with what you wish. But uh, a little bit, you know, what I bring from my training as an architect is this idea of having a client and a problem to solve. And as soon as I moved to New York and sort of started experiencing experience what it means to be a minority, belong to mar marginal groups, and to start seeing that my experience wasn't reflected in museums. Um, and I start working in museums, I start looking at audiences, as clients, right? As people that you need to serve and you need to um, be relevant to. And I start understanding that idea of lack of relevancy as a problem to solve. Mm -hmm. and, and then the power, right, that museums have, um, I think sometimes we look at museums in a very naive way and thinking that are like beyond any um, any bias or beyond any sort of political mm. um, power. And it's completely the opposite, right? And sort of like trying to open that up, that power to share it and to be a platform for so many um, interesting things that a museum can do is great. And I've been for a... It's been eight months since I took over the Les Loma Museum. And, you know, I sort of rushed to take care of, like, the, um, what people think the museum should be, make sure the exhibitions are planned, make sure, you know, the space looks well. And now I'm really getting excited because I can just move from the walls into what, you know, happens if that museum start planning all that. Yeah, that moving from the walls, uh, I think that's that's a, that's a, the, one of the biggest differences that both of you make repeatedly in the work that you do. Um, so maybe you want to talk a little bit about an example of a project that you're currently involved in or something that um, has recently happened that is about that moving from the walls, just to give concrete example to folks. Well, um, you know, probably the longest running example of that for the Queens Museum is our um, off-site uh, immigrant Arts and Activism Center, Immigrant Movement International Corona. And that was actually initiated as by an artist, by a Cuban artist named Tanya Bruguera, who had this idea that, A, she wanted to kind of expand or develop an idea of a new genre of art called arte util, or useful art, mm -hmm. um, and figure out what it meant to be useful, and not just to kind of create a prototype or a concept for something that would be useful, but to actually... Um, try and produce it, or produce something that actually solves a political problem that is timely, that engages non-artists, et cetera. And at the same time, um, you know, she had been living in France at the time of a lot of uh, uprisings in the suburbs um, and experiencing you know, a lot of xenophobia against the Arab communities in Europe. And I think really kind of presciently identified um, like migrant rights as kind of the biggest human rights question of the 21st century, and I think we're really seeing that. But 
you know, and her original idea was to create this transnational party for, for migrants um, mm. because the state is what gives one rights, human rights, and if you're not in a position where the state grants you those rights, then who would? And so this idea of this kind of deterritorialized um, political party was the first thing, but of course you can't um, you know, use nonprofit funds to fund a, no. an actual political party, so it became a movement, but really what developed in this storefront um, in Corona very modest was, you know, happened on multiple registers. One, it was a place where, you know, artists and academics could hash out this idea of arte utile and what it would mean um, to work alongside immigrants and immigrant rights activists and, and develop projects together in a respectful way. And on the other, like, what is it that the local community of immigrants really wanted and needed uh, for them to develop their leadership and their artistry? And so, you know, now Tanya has transitioned out. And, um, you know, as she was transitioning, we developed a community council of people mm -hmm. who had been using the space and running workshops there. Um, an artist from the community who wanted to see this continue um, and staff from the museum. And so we together now as a kind of collaborative team decide kind of, you know, what artists we want to work with, what um, coalitions we want to be part of, what are the kind of stakes um, at play in neighborhood politics and how do we as uh, together be able to, to bring voices that aren't usually at decision-making tables, um, whether it's about community development, um, you know, bike lanes and advocacy, you know, kind of public space advocacy, uh, whether it's about public schools and how um, immigrant parents and families are treated, um, whether it's about um, public safety and the relationship between uh, the community and um, police, for example, all of those things are things that emerged from the community themselves. And then the museum really acts as a facilitator to try and find artists and, um, and other groups to work with that, that can share methodology. But really, the goal is um, for more and more of that community council to be driving what goes on there and shapes, shapes it. And I think we're, we're trying to really be um, an ally and I think that kind of underlines like how we feel about like our relationship to our local communities is is that we're we're just one voice and we have certain assets and networks, uh, whether it's artists and designers or relationships to uh, elected officials or press, um, you know, beyond just the building itself and and those resources. There's the people at the museum and mm -hmm. and um, and the artists network that we have and what can how can we really see that as an asset alongside the kind of more traditional organizing um, methodologies being employed by other nonprofits or advocacy groups in in, in the neighborhood mm -hmm. in my case I have um, one of my favorite things that happened so far in my short tenure at the Liz Loman is um, I invited a neighbor of mine. I live in Jackson Heights, Queens, and Nancy Agavian. She um, is a professor at NYU, a queer author, and she organizes workshops, creative workshops. And with this idea, the museum for the longest was a museum whose idea of gay art, if there's such thing, um, was male erotica. And it, the community around it was very much white, gay, older men, the generation of the 60s, 70s that we call the sex-positive generation. 
nothing wrong with that. I'm very proud of that. But we felt in a moment in which newer generations are embracing the word queerness as a way to signify um, an identity outside power structures, you know, how this museum could also be as relevant as we are to the sex positive generation to newer generations. And this started as a complete <laughs> experiment, as a pilot, in which um, Nancy came and did a six-week workshop in which reading from um, authors and um, queer community members you know, in different moments of the modern um, civil rights um, movement of the LGBT community from um, Stonewall, the AIDS pandemic, the feminist movement within them, lesbians, and now mm -hmm. you know, queerness, um, how those readings could inspire um, the workshop participants to write you know, their own work. Um, what was amazing is um, the way that Nancy described it. It was great to see that workshop participants could feel that they could be themselves in race, religion, um, sexual um, preference, gender expression, you name it, right? And that queerness is not the other one in the room. Mm -hmm. And be surrounded, right? You know, when I said off the wall, the walls to me are very important because the work on the walls could provide a context for mm. creative expression. Um, and then that workshop culminating um, in a reading, in a public reading, which you know a lot of people came to see that work. But then what's brilliant, and it takes it to the next level, Nancy said, you know, what if we invite the alumni to come back to the museum once a month to do a peer-to-peer -peer support, right? So this idea that we come in, we offer the resources, we help bring a community together, and then we step back, but we continue to support the sustainability of that community. Mm -hmm. Right, <clears throat> and then how many you know the participants, the readers, how many of them they start seeing the museum in a different light? Right, it's a place I can go and create. It's a place that I belong. It's a place that I meet other people like myself, and and just a little bit that idea of, um, of the walls, which very much is. And I feel like we're talking to you, and we're not talking <laughs> together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but very much that what I just gave away is Brianna's secret recipe, right? And <laughs> probably you don't know, and a lot of people know how Priyana and I met. And when I first came to Jackson Heights um, with, a, with a, my, my ex-partner, we realized that there was a huge concentration of gay men in Jackson Heights. This is 2004 or five? Four or five, yes. Um, no Tinder, no Grindr, no, no <laughs> smartphones. So the only option that many of these gay men had to meet other gay men was the bar scene. And we created a small um, monthly film series um, in a community house in the neighborhood, just mm -hmm. to, with the excuse of bringing together people and build community. And there was a moment in which Priyana um, was starting to see how we can open up the Queens Museum, how we start looking at the communities around us. And she went looking for leadership in, in different communities around the museum and offering the, the museum as a platform. And that's you know how we met. Right. But more importantly, that's how I sort of learned that strategy. There is very simple but demands a lot of commitment from a museum to really open up their spaces and, and host, um, host communities that are gonna be making decisions that probably are not aligned with the decisions of the museum, but that comfort in just knowing that, um, that you can give the space away. Actually, I, I, I didn't know you're right, I didn't know how you met. <laughs> I, I know that you have a very big friendship. <laughs> and I was wondering, like, you know, uh, in that friendship, like, 
it seems like it's allied not only to you personally, but to the work that you're trying to do in the world, um, and that you use each other as support. I was going to just ask you to talk about that, how you support each other. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there's the day-to-day, but like, how do you, how do you do this work? How do you sustain this work? It's, it's life work, right? It's not a nine to five. I mean, when you're working with communities, um, you have to, you know, there's a lot of meetings, evenings, weekends. Um, you have to really invest yourself in thinking about how um, you're not only creating an open platform, but creating a relationship that's going to be ongoing. And that you're building not just trust with that cultural producer who's representing a community and like, you know, is this kind of intermediary between kind of the users and the institution, but also thinking of them as artists, thinking of like how, like what is it that they need to build up their own practice, uh, their own confidence, their own network, et cetera. You know, it can start small like Cinema Rosa as a monthly film series and but it also means that, you know, then we start thinking about it bigger, like, you know, what do we do for, you know, pride? What do we do in terms of bringing in performers? And, you know, and, and also that friendship just develops because you're having those conversations. Why these films, you know, the conversation after the Q&A, you know, having that social space, it just kind of emerged organically. But then I think that we're, we all come at certain crossroads or decision-making points about whether or not it makes sense to go in this direction or this direction, or we have limited resources, and how, how are we going to do that? And if we're hiring people who also bring their entire lives and dedication to that work because it, it reflects their, their values and the world that they want to see be created, right? It's not just about fulfilling kind of the job description. It's really, I think all of us are there because we see something that we wanted to have as a cultural space and, and kind of behavior and, and resources and platforms that we wanted to see. And we want to make sure that that's there for other people. Um, and so like all of those things are tiring and like being able to have a comrade is super important having a thought partner. And while there's certain things, you know, there are definitely people within our own institutions um, that we speak to. It's good to have somebody who, um, who has a little bit of distance from it, but who you kind of, over time through your relationship of working together and collaborating together, that you have so much trust about about their values and about their perspective. All that, <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> I think um, it's very, at least for me, it's very difficult, and you talk about this for a minute, um, it's very difficult to draw the line between work and life. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a little bit because I'm a workaholic, very much like Prana here, but also because of the work that we do is probably for me also because the first communities that I enter um, in this country, I enter through work, right? I didn't have a lot of friends mm-hmm. and sort of like, it sort of it all got mixed, but pretty much the work that I'm trying to do myself at the museum is the work that I'm trying to do myself as a New Yorker here, sort of like how I can use access the power that I have through the platforms that I access and just sort of like continue to build a community and pay forward all the support that I got when I first came to this country 16 years ago. And 
And in building that community, you just connect with folks like Peana and so many. And in the case specifically of the two of us, I feel like our lives also had you know, very parallel. We had our moments of extreme workaholism in which mm -hmm. we all talk about the work that we're doing. But very similarly, at the same time, we both found our partners in life and you know, our, li our, our families start growing. And I do remember um, a moment in which sort of like you, ch you could feel that, you know, was, this was beyond colleagues, but, you know, like we started to feel like there was a friendship and a, and a, and a sense of like um, sort of like a family being built. And, and again, acknowledging that um, the work is hard. Life in New York is hard, and it's great to have people around you that not only smart and great professionals, but also um, loving, loving um, friends with um, great values. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would just say, I, you know, I was thinking, I was like, I'm even getting like teary-eyed. I was thinking about oh. the, <laughs> the moment I live in the Rockaways, and I had just moved out to the Rockaways like maybe two months before Sandy. And I had evacuated, and I was in Brooklyn, and you know, staying in my old neighborhood. And you know, nothing much happened in Clinton Hill. It was high up, but I, I just kind of knew that it wasn't okay where you know I had moved to. And even though it was new, it was a big life choice to kind of uh, around self care and around you know, kind of what was going to make me happy. And so to have that, like be like the first two months of like amazing, like I made the best decision ever and then that happened. But then also to be kind of all of a sudden really divorced from the reality of it. The f and I was in Brooklyn and I called, the first person I called was Gonzalo and I said, I need to go see what happened and I can't do it alone. And so, I mean, not only did he help clean up, but like he, you know, you know, I lived on his couch, <laughs> you know, I stored my stuff in his basement. So I think that there's lots of ways that, you know, life throws you curves. And um, it's important that you're not like asking favors. And I think there's certain people that you've, you know, had enough life experiences with that, you know, like you said, they're just family. And, um, and I think as you're making you're making choices about work, but you're also making choices about life and uh, how you want to structure the work and how you want to build your own capacity when you need um, inspiration, time away, all of those types of things that are, are beyond the kind of nuts and bolts as well. And can I yeah. hijack a little bit? And, you know, do you ever use the word curator to define yourself? No. Um, I, and I want to hear why, but you know, like to me is I never use the word curator, and this is out of respect of curators. I feel like everybody now is a curator of something. Um, but to me, and, and sort of these conversations reflects that, right? You know, to me, the art is very important. The quality of the art, whatever that means, is very important. When we were doing Cinema Rosa, we we're paying a lot of attention about the films and the quality of the films. But what was at the core? It was that community, right, and that, that building that community and serving a group of people. And to me, it's interesting how this conversation, sort of the, the art is in the background and it's the context in which we operate. And by art, I mean creativity, you know, like the artists. But, you know, it's, again, the community, the people are at the core of um, what we do and just comes up in our personal lives, too. Yeah, and I think it's not just Gonzalo and I. I think if you looked at New York <laughs> City kind of like 
arts and cultural organizing world or people who are trying to work with socially engaged artist practices, that you'll find that a lot of those people are also friends and confidants. There's, you know, there's no kind of playbook for doing this mm -hmm. either. Um, and I think the difference, I mean, I always, I don't know if there's a great word for what we do, but I think I've kind of historically used cultural producer, right? And so, you know, I, I'm a cultural producer that has an institutional platform, but there's cultural producers everywhere in every neighborhood um, and, you know, in every church basement. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think that they've been doing amazing work for a long time. And I think oftentimes that kind of work doesn't ever make it to the attention of institutions, doesn't get archived, doesn't get, you know, there's no retrospective for those type of people, you know? And so I think for, you know, for us, like doing this work, giving this is really about honoring the, the role of people who care about quality, but also care about like the creation of community, care about uh, looking at historical legacies of place, um, and of movements and, and weave all of those things together. And I don't call myself a curator and maybe that's because I agree with you. I think that I respect curatorial work and the amazing amount of dedication, respect for artists, the research, the kind of ongoing dialogue, the attention to aesthetics and, and presentation and interpretation. All of that is incredibly important work and I think is very important for how we as a culture understand moments um, in not just the art world, but in, in, in kind of the cultural sphere more broadly. So, you know, I always go back to certain kind of seminal catalogs and things like that. Seminal exhibitions is not just about that art, but about how it reframes a particular moment for me and for the culture at large. So I, I don't say that I'm necessarily doing that. Um, um, but I do think that I am a cultural producer and I come from another kind of tradition, the unsung tradition of the kind of folks who are in artist collectives or, you know, folks who are in community spaces. And, and I think the interesting thing now is that some of those people are fine, like myself and Gonzalo, are finding ourselves in institutional spaces and, and given room to kind of create that bridge. Let's talk just for a minute about sort of uh, some of that heritage, or I asked each of you to name sort of an inspirational project or something that you looked at. And Gonzalo, you named one that was from 1983 in Buenos Aires. <laughs> so that feels like uh, that was kind of early. And I wanted to hear more about, you know, the project and how you felt it was had an impact on you. So um, the project we are talking about is um, Marta Minujin's um, Parthenon of Books. And what she created is with the um, same structure that you do scaffolding. She created um, sort of the structure that resembled to the Parthenon in Greece, um, real scale. And, but what was interesting is that she covered that structure with um, books that had been banned by the military government that was just coming down at that moment in Argentina after, I think, almost a decade. I was born in 74 um, in the midst of the, of the military dictatorship. I was nine years old when that project came up. And, and to me, that what's great is um, after that project was up for, like I think, a couple of weeks, the artist herself invited people to <laughs> 
which couldn't be done in this country at all, right? Invite people to go into the structure, climb it, and just take the books and take the books home, right? And I think all the kinds of liability, as a cultural <laughs> producer now, liability <laughs> permits and whatever. And what was great is that this project was done um, right in the moment in which we, the dictatorship was, you know, what we would call a lame duck, you know, like they were mm -hmm. just already decided they were down, you know, like nobody had trust on them, if they ever had. Uh, and then there was a new government, a democratic government coming in, but there was a little bit of a transition. So she was able to get and uh, mobilize a lot of, you know, engineering companies, construction companies, but also all the uh, publishing companies that had books that had to be, um, they were going to be either destroyed or they were like sort of like hidden in basements because yeah. they want to get in trouble. And then the beauty of, um, the people coming in, grabbing the books, that dissemination of books that were hidden for so long, but also sort of like the disappearance of that structure that, you know, the Greek structure that means mm. so much institutional power and just being dissolved by the people. Um, I thought it was really strong. Of course, I make all these <laughs> um, sort of conceptual analysis, you know, after um, what, almost 30, 40, 30 years. Um, I was nine years old. But um, I do remember that moment that that was happening, my parents taking me to see it, and, and just how that sort of like, I think, I think planted a seed for me for the work that I'm doing now. What seed? That idea of like, you know, the power of arts and culture, the idea of arts and culture not necessarily is a beautiful thing on the wall, but participation, mm -hmm. political, mm -hmm. um, um, idea of dissemination of the books, mm -hmm. um, I think it was really strong. Yeah. That's a really, really powerful uh, image. That coming back uh, again in a certain way. What, it's just, it was just um, published again. Um, yeah, it was recreated again uh, this year. This year for Documenta. Yeah, this year for Documenta. I don't remember the number of Documenta. And it was created in, in, in Castle, where Documenta is. The, the German um, um, Bayern, I don't know if it's like every five mm -hmm. years or whatever, the sh German show. And it was recreated specifically in a, in a place in which books had been burned by the Nazi um, regime. regime. Um, so it just had a different Resident, meaning, yeah. but, at, but at the same time, very similar um, strategy. Yeah. Prana, you want to talk about the project you chose? Sure. Um, I chose a project called the Conflictarium, and it's interesting because I've never actually been there. So it, it's I've met people who've worked there or done projects there, but I've never actually been to Gujarat, where it's located in India. Um, but Gujarat, you know, is, this also requires a little like historical <laughs> <laughs> like step back about why it was influential to me. But I think one of the biggest um, traumas about the foundation of you know the Indian nation as well as the other South Asian nations after you know years of British colonialism was partition and the kind of um, the enmity between Muslims and um, and Hindus that remained to this and that remains to this day and in Gujarat um, there were political forces a new political party called the BJP that was basically a Hindu fundamentalist uh, party that was uh, using tactics that I think will be very familiar to Americans today in terms of whipping up xenophobia um, and racism and making people feel um, like 
we, you know, we need to make Hinduism great again, and this is our nation, et cetera. You know, it's very similar. And I think they were very savvy in terms of using cultural space, using stories, um, taking over schools, educational spaces. Um, and, and so I remember th thinking, you know, we need to do something about this as the BJP was just first starting, and, and um, we could see it coming to power. And in Gujarat, there was this huge massacre in which um, the BJP riled up activists from all over India to come and destroy this mosque that had, um, you know, they claimed originally been a Hindu temple in Ayodhya. And then there was this kind of mass um, killing and burning systematically of Muslim, um, Muslim businesses and homes, uh, including a lot of sexual violence that happened against Muslims at that time. And so to think about, like, the history of this big conflict that was being reopened in, in, in this way and was becoming uh, something that felt like a tragedy in waiting. And, um, and I felt like, especially coming from the diaspora, there was a huge um, push from and funding from diaspora communities, conservative diaspora communities in, from India here in the United States as well as uh, other parts of the world that were really funding this type of um, of conservatism and um, and communalism, as we would say, in India. And so, um, and that was just the beginning. Um, and now, um, the person who is kind of the architect of that massacre is now the prime minister of, of India. Mm -hmm. And so, it seemed important to me to kind of how do one, how does one address this type of xenophobia? in the place where kind of it rebloomed, this kind of, um, you know, and then throughout the nation kind of became this force, but done in a way that isn't just about that one incident, but, but kind of looks at conflict in general and what causes it, how is it fomented, why is it linger and continue and kind of the meta questions about it and also does it in a way that's really accessible to the communities of people who are not just affected by it, by, but who are part of committing acts that contribute to um, conflict on a daily level. And so kind of having this open structure um, for programming, but also, you know, there's like a sari tree and there's like historical things around conflict within the South Asian context that isn't just about this. So that isn't just like, oh, it's, it's only about this one moment. It's really about this continuum. And I think that there's just ways in which they're really smart about that, making the space very accessible, locating it um, in communities that had experienced this type of division, um, but you know, doing so with kind of humor, grace, kind of a sense of like neighborhood scale that I thought was interesting. A lot of times, there's this kind of mo like drive towards monumentalism for these type of things um, or these grand gestures, and I think sometimes the real work is like what happens after that. Like, what happens after that emotional moment? Like, how does that become like a continuing practice in a community? Mm. And like, who's, who's doing that? Who's caring about that long-term work and that long-term education of generations of people about how they're learning about what happened? So for me, that's what was inspirational is that, that, that it's like the small museum and the museum that's, you know, I feel like, conflict is at the center of almost everything, you know, every exhibition that we probably show at the Queens Museum, but it's not the center of the, how people start the conversation and look at their own complicity. And I think that's what's interesting about framing the museum around this conflict and framing it at this scale.
Yeah, it's really great. It's really powerful um, uh, practice um, there and in the know, community. We, um, we're in a moment in which, um, unfortunately, arts and culture are not the driving forces of the changes that are happening in our um, society, right? Science and technology are. But to me, it's arts and culture what helps you make sense of these changes and very structural changes and help people cope with that. And, and just going back to the nitty gritty of our work, right? You know, um, you're, we have a, we're in this very capitalistic um, approach to arts and culture in which you have to prove impact, you have to prove, you know, like the investment that a funder did on your project, how it's gonna work. And I always say, right, very much like, that kid that experienced that moment of public art. Um, and until 10, 20 years after that, I didn't realize what the impact was. Or myself as an immigrant, um, using arts and culture as a way to build a community around myself in a moment, in a society, in a country that I didn't know, um, how, I, how we can sort of trust a little bit more the power of arts and culture and know, at least from my personal experience, you know, the impact that that has, and it helped us, again, deal with all these conflicts and all these um, issues in happening in society um, that are usually um, thought about science and technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm, we're going to have to wrap up in a few <laughs> minutes. No, but I, I want to just acknowledge that, um, that that sort of coming back to the way that we're living now, the way that our culture has shifted or or opened up a lot of things that were already there, but have made it very, very obvious, um, sort of the dynamics that exist within America, um, and sort of how uh, we're finding a role within that, or how that's changing um, our roles um, since the last presidential election. And I'm wondering, has it changed your work? Has it sharpened it? Are there other things you're you're looking for your own self to move forward, or has it just reinforced what the, you know your belief in what you're already doing? Well, I mean, I think it's for you know the communities that I often work with. Um, you know, a lot of them are in mixed status families, and so are in a in a, a state of much you know greater precarity than even before. Not to say that they weren't, they didn't have a certain amount of precarity before, but I think the sense of antagonism that the, that moment kind of pulled out, like made a kind of attention towards kind of community building even stronger. Um, that sense that, can, that Gonzalo talked about, that when you are here alone and not feeling supported or, or even feeling that you're in a hostile environment, that, that community building is even more important. And so I think I had to be perhaps a little bit more patient for that process to emerge for those same people that I thought we were on this trajectory and here's our plan and whatever to slow down and create room for um, you know, the experience of violence and insecurity and um, to, to have processing and to create structures, both you know internally in the organizations that I work with, but in a broader level, you know, amongst various communities in Queens, um, that sense of safety before we can kind of push forth again. And mm -hmm. so I think it really forced me to to kind of like understand that 
um, that trauma takes time and that there's oftentimes like this idea that we need, there's a, you know, oh, we need now more than ever to be on the street or fighting or pushing, but like sometimes it's also, it's a long fight. Mm. <laughs> and so um, arts and culture is also a, a healing space and a community building space. And sometimes that becomes a more important function than the pushing and the challenging space. When the, um, in November last year, I was um, still working at the High Line, and we had installed um, in one of the neighboring walls to the park a huge um, reproduction of Zoe Leonard's I Want a President, which is this, I wouldn't say a poem, but it's a write-up in which she, um, that she had um, written in 1992 during the election between Bush and, and Clinton about you know how um, marginal groups, um, dykes, um, gay men, um, people with no health insurance, you name it, right? They did not have access to power and what it would mean to have people that is empathic to the problems that our society has as president. And so we had put that on the wall and then we did a series of three or four sessions in which we invited um, poet, poets, authors, writers, activists, to stand up on a soapbox and sort of um, mm -hmm. respond to that um, um, that piece, and so it's peace. Uh, the election comes, and the day after the election, I was walking on the park with um, the director of the organization, um, Robert Hammond, and he says, you, you think we should do more soapbox and we should do more? And I was like, you know what? Um, we were wrong, and I think now is the moment not just for like, you know, unilateral statements, but a moment for dialogue. And it might sound a little um, naive, and I know there's people that you know there's no point of sitting across the table and talking, but there's a lot of people that are not probably the sort of radical left that you are surrounded that could benefit from, you know, like listening about how, you know, um, marginal groups live, how this is affecting these groups in a different way that is affecting um, sort of other groups. And, and I think, you know, and probably you, Ryan, know this better than us, how, you know, maybe theater and, you know, um, sort of performative um, um, projects could help people just start dialogue and have conversations. I feel like a lot of what we do is trying to start dialogue and have conversations. Um, it's just that those conversations are, uh, are I don't know, they, they are more distressing and simultaneously more comforting. Um, they feel more necessary in, in, in my part of the world that uh, we, we can't, they're not optional anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have to, we have, to uh, have them and we have to facilitate them and support them. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, I think there's often this way of, you know, it's like the red states, blue states, or rural or urban, and, you know, coming from Queens and working in Queens, there's plenty of, of uh, people that would seem like red state people, you know. And Queens Village, anyone? <laughs> the Rock, part of the Rockaways yes. where I live as well. So, um, you know, and so there's plenty of places to practice. We don't all have to like get up and, you know, drive to the South or something to have these conversations. And, um, and I think that oftentimes when, when, you know, starts to unpack those things, like there is, there's actually a lot of similarities. And I think that there's generational differences, there's 
I think an incredible amount of violence done done to people to keep people in particular kind of ideological boxes and you know for groups that have um, generationally made it you know to not move, feel like they're moving back <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um, and so you know I talk to folks like in my you know own block who complain you know why is it that everything's in Spanish like I had to learn English you know. <laughs> <laughs> my, I was like, well, how long did it take for your, you know, grandmother to learn? And she's like, oh, she never learned. And I was like, so, yeah, that's kind of the same. It's never any faster. <laughs> you know, it's a generational process. But why is it, like, wouldn't it have been nice for your grandmother to be able to, you know, exercise her rights and be respected as an Italian speaker or, you know, as whatever other speaker that they were and not have to just you know, wait for 25 years until, you know, generationally they could be respected. Like, is that not something to support? And so I think there are a lot of ways in which if you kind of scratch under the surface, um, it has to do with something cultural and historical that we need to kind of really understand and like certain traumas that have never actually really been processed and that show up in this mm. way. And so, um, so that's one of the things I think, it's not easy work to do even here um, but I think the challenge is to find spaces in which, because people don't necessarily choose to have difficult conversations with their spare time, so like, how do you actually create those like physical spaces? And I think you know, public space then becomes a much more important venue. Like, you can't just like put it in a theater or museum and expect you know these different voices to come together in this like rich dialogue. I think you have to kind of put it in contested space in some ways. So. Um, and in public spaces, whether they be plazas, parks, streets, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm interested in kind of how things move from the kind of dialogue, slow dialogue in, mm-hmm. in spaces to kind of the public. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll but we'll it, see what happens. I think that's what's to come, and I'm looking forward to how all of these kind of conversations that are happening within communities and movements like emerge on a kind of bigger scale. I think... Uh, but Piranha, you reminded me just that I, you know, I get concentrated sometimes on the action and saying that for a lot of people that are directly impacted, um, going straight to action is not necessarily what is uh, the most helpful or the most supportive, but having a place to kind of um, handle the impact or, or, you know, have a company as you're trying to process and, and consider what the impact is. Um, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. It helps me with that idea sometimes where self-care has become you know, a dialogue that's happening a lot in arts and culture, and sometimes I feel impatient with the, <laughs> the self-care dialogue. Um, but that's probably because uh, you know I can't always perceive the amount of impact that um, somebody's experiencing. And it's a good reminder to me that, you know, it, it, we yeah. can't stay in a reflective and dialogue uh, place. There's a lot of work to be done, but it's also, really critical that we have the dialogue. I remember you telling me, and I don't remember exactly when, but I think it was around the election saying, you know, this is not the first, this is not new to me. This is not the first time that happens to me. So, you know, to me, it was interesting how we all come at different moments to issues and trauma, right? And for many people, this is the first time, and they need a little more time to figure out. 
and you know, in that case, you were like, you know, I'm ready. <laughs> 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 I've done this. I know how to do it. You know, let's get to it. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you, I, you know, oh. and I also wanted to say <laughs> that I think, I think the self bring, you know, the self care thing. I, you know. There's the kind of individual self-care and then there's the community self-care. Yeah. And that community self-care has to do with like what are the structures that we're building to make people not feel alone. And that is actually action. It's just a different kind of action. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I also don't want to leave it at let's all give free yoga classes or something, you know. <laughs> I mean and I like yoga. Yeah. I am not <laughs> saying there's anything wrong with it or any type of, you know practice, centering practice, and that's important for to give people space to do that, but I think when I'm talking about this, I'm also talking about, like, what does it mean to create, you know, give my staff time to develop uh, an emergency planning toolkit, or, mm -hmm. you know, that can be used by different groups or to explore that option, or, you know, how do we work with other organizations along the seven train line, you know, who might be serving you know different immigrant communities to like work together to figure out like how to create a sense of safety along this corridor so i think that there's action items they're just like that's very different than the kind of self-care of like individual self-care and i think that that i think that's a great distinction yeah thank you <laughs> between but, individual and community and i feel completely ashamed we didn't do these um in the hour we were talking about but you know I cannot, probably Prana agrees with me, we cannot do this work without artists, right? And we haven't even mentioned <laughs> the artists and their work. I mean, we've mentioned their work, but not specifically the artists, and I think that's really important. And every time there's a project, and you know, I always say, without artists, we need to close, there's nothing for us to do, so just, I just wanna shout out to the artists that really are the ones doing the work. Yay. <laughs> Any other shout outs? Um, well, I mean, I think a lot of people are doing work. I think that, the, you know, people are, I don't want art to be, like, left out of this conversation. I think that, like, my, what I've noticed in this work is that as we create structures at the Queens Museum to support socially engaged work, the fact that we have staff who care about it, you know, or have some experience, um, you know, supporting it, that that actually becomes a resource for artists to think bigger and to think more um, intensively about their social role. And so I, I don't see it as pulling, like, oh, either you're making aesthetic art or you're making socially engaged art. I just think that, like, for a long time, the institutions haven't had or exercised enough muscle about their role, their social role, and how to support artists who have interests in doing that. I think, you know, whether you're a sculptor or a painter or whatever, you could be socially engaged. It's not like its own category, but I, you know, so when I worked with artists, sometimes, you know, they've been like, oh, well, you know, I've always had this idea that, like, this would be something that would be connected to organizing or, you know, this would be a real useful tool, but I've never had the capacity or, you know, the dedication to that piece of the idea and not just what shows up in the gallery. And so I think that's the other thing that as, like, from an institutional place, um, that I try and do is, is thinking about like, oh, what does it mean for the institution to care about that and offer that and to like listen to the ideas of artists when they're given uh, that additional support for extending their work. Well, I'm just gonna close by saying I'm so glad you are both doing the work that you're doing. Um, 
you both are an inspiration to me, and uh, it's true. And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing how we all move through these times together. Can we do a shout out to our tech? Yes, we can. Thanks, Mike, <laughs> for being such an awesome listener. Thank you, Mike. As always. Thank you, Ryan. Yes. This is Ryan Gillum for Artwork, the Fab NYC podcast about how art works in the world. My guests were Gonzalo Casals and Piranha Reddy. You can learn more about their work by checking out the links on our podcast page at fabnyc.org. Thanks to Michael Hickey, our podcast producer. The Fab NYC staff, Addison, Emilio, Dakota, KT, and Kim. And thanks to you, our listeners. Our appreciation goes out to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, New York City Department of Small Business Services, former City Council member Rosie Mendez, the New York State Council on the Arts, and Con Edison for supporting Fab NYC programs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>